Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. The Law Enforcement Today Show is brought to you in part by Transformations Treatment Center. Many are using the term epidemic to describe the current problem of drug and or alcohol abuse in the United States. Virtually everyone we know has been negatively impacted by this problem. Yet for so many that are experiencing the devastating effects of drug and or alcohol abuse, they don't know who to turn to for help. Who can we trust to care for our loved ones? Transformations Treatment Center is one of the most respected, ethical, and professional drug and alcohol treatment centers in the world with a strong focus on individualized care, offering a wide range of holistic, specialized, and medically supervised treatment programs. We know that many of you have questions. Take the time to call Transformations Treatment Center for the answers. 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. Or go online to transformationstreatment.center. Calling us from New York State, we have James Gagliano on the phone. James is a retired FBI agent, amongst many other things. Thanks so much for being a guest on the Law Enforcement Day Show. Very much appreciated. Well, I appreciate it, and it's, uh, it's good to join you. Looking forward to the chat. Now, I say, amongst other things, James is going to talk about his FBI career. In particular, we're going to talk about use of force, but he's also a contributor for CNN. You've probably seen him on there before. And you're also a contributor for Washington Examiner, correct? Yes. Yep. I write op-eds for them as well. What do you do with CNN? So for CNN, I am a law enforcement analyst, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm salaried, so it's, uh, whenever they need me, they give me a call, and I either go out to the site if it's a mass shooting or a terror attack, or they have, obviously we're doing a lot of it now on Zoom, but they'll have me in the studio. So I've been with them for about four years now. And the Washington Examiner, you do op-eds about police, law enforcement, use of force, all that stuff. Yep, mostly that. Some some small amount of politics, but most of it I try to keep it between the white lines of uh, law enforcement matters. I think you and I are getting along great because I'll be honest with you, James, when politics gets introduced into the mix, it muddies things up so much. And all police I know, including feds, uh, they have a distaste for partisan politics. Absolutely. And, and look, I mean, politics, I mean, it's, it's, it's predicated on policy. And so obviously law enforcement in this country and around the world are, are subject to, you know, to policy. So there's always going to be a convergence there. But uh, I agree with you, the, the, the less partisan politics that get introduced into it, um, the better. It should, be a, it should be an apolitical, nonpartisan issue. But uh, unfortunately, as we're witnessing right now, um, it seems to be infecting everything related with law enforcement. Absolutely. Let people know where they can get more information about you and the different things you do. Sure. They can uh, either follow me on Twitter at James A. Galliano, G-A-G-L-I-A-N-O, at Twitter.com, or I have a, a website, same thing, JamesAGalliano.com, and uh, you can take a look there and, and see some of the stuff that I'm working on. 
My apologies. I threw another G in your name. I call you James Gagliano, and I realized no, you, now you, you were actually correct. The gotcha. spelling has 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 a G in it. It's G A G, but uh, the the pronunciation is Galliano. It's a, it's a crazy Sicilian thing, but That's right. trust me, it's, I'm I'm not offended. I grew up in the Deep South in the 1970s, so you can only imagine the way that name was bastardized. The reason I bring that up is. It, it just fired off a random memory from those gray cells between the ears. I worked with a guy uh, in the Baltimore Police Department who had the same last name. Uh, he pronounced it Gagliano, and he's from New York wow. originally. And he passed away at a very young age. And Long story short, and let this be a word of warning to young men out there. Uh, he had a tumor that developed on his back, and he went to get that checked out, and they did a bunch of things, and, and they found out that he had testicular cancer and in this examination. He didn't know he had it, and he passed away less than a year later. And wow. it, it took him very quick, very young. So if you are a young man, be sure to look. I hate those exams. I hate that whole part of the thing. Get it done. Yeah, I can't disagree with you there. I mean, everything is early detection. I mean, that's just, it's so simple to think about all the people that, that, that would still be with us if they had just taken the opportunity to have early detection done and gone to the doctor. So that, that is sage advice, my friend. And by the way, back then, we didn't talk about these things. Nope. And here we are. I'm a retired Baltimore police. You're retired FBI. After all the things that you and I went through in our careers, all the life-threatening stuff, did you ever think you'd be on the radio talking about checking for testicular cancer? No, no, I, I absolutely didn't. But, uh, you know, it, I'm 55 now. And, and a few years ago, I was 10 feet tall and bulletproof and thought I was immortal. But uh, I think you get a little older and you get more of an appreciation for your own mortality. So, again, good advice for the listeners. Let's just go back to your career, start to finish. Uh, you were in, I believe, the Army before you went into the FBI? Sure. So, um, so I come from a, a long lineage of, uh, of of military folks. On my mother's side, um, we had a we had a great 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 times three grandfather that served in the Civil War for the Union, and then on my father's side, I mean, from World War II to the Korean conflict uh, to Vietnam, and um, I, I graduated from West Point in 1987. Spent four years in the Army as a Airborne Ranger Infantry Officer with the uh, with the 10th Mountain Division, and then left the Army at the height of the Cold War. I just didn't think there was going to be enough action there. And then, of course, right after I get out to go to the FBI Academy, the United States gets involved in the first Gulf War. So my timing is always perfect, my friend. I mean, perfect in a bad sense, because I was miserable at the FBI Academy thinking, oh, my gosh, I mean, this is where I needed to be. But things ended up working out. And in a 25-year FBI career, I've spent more time overseas in combat zones with the FBI and Joint Special Operations Command military units than I ever did, obviously, when I spent four years at the height of the Cold War in the Army. So, you know how they say, things always work out for a reason. And I always say this, too. I've met so many people that, in military, they said, I never served in combat. Well, look, that's not your call. You signed up knowing what the risk could be, and higher-ups decided what we did and whether you went or not. So you prepared yourself, and you were ready in case called upon. So uh, that's through no fault of your own, and that's serving valiantly. And, and same, by the way, with law enforcement. I've had so many retired cops and federal agents go, you know, in my career, I never pulled my gun or I was never in a shootout. And, uh, you know, I feel like I didn't contribute the way others did. And again, I say the same thing. You know, you made yourself available for the worst case scenario. And 
those things just wound up happening. In my experience, they happen quickly, suddenly, and no one expected or planned for them. The planned stuff, the raids and all that stuff, nothing bad really ever happened. Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. You know the old saying that, you know, all gave some, but some gave all. Um, when, when you look at percentages, the United States is 327 million people living here, and I think about 700 or 800,000 of them put on the uniform and strap on the badge and gun and go to work as law enforcement. And I think in the military, the numbers are about the same. I think it works out to be like about 0.04% of the population. So very small percentage of the population. Yes, your point is well taken about people that enter into the military. Very few of them see see combat on the front lines. But I think the old saying was that, you know, for every one infantry soldier sitting in a foxhole with a rifle, there's a nine-person tail behind them, you know, whether it's aviation or the mail or, or chow or artillery or, you know, naval operations. So everybody contributes. It's the same thing in law enforcement. I mean, certainly there are folks that are more on the front lines, whether they're in the anti-crime units or the narco units or the violent street gangs, task forces, those kind of things. But if you if you raise your right hand and swear an oath to, to uh, you know, to, to protect and serve, you, you deserve credit. So I, I, I'm like you. I believe that anybody that decides to, to go into public service, especially when there's a great chance that you're going to put yourself in harm's way, kudos to you. I mean, it's, it's something that I think the vast majority of us don't, just don't do. We're going to a short break. We're talking with James Galliano, retired FBI agent. This is the Law Enforcement Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Don't miss the huge Back to Blue and First Responders Parade and Rally in beautiful Key West, Florida, Friday, January 8, 2021. Active and retired law enforcement officers and other first responders from all over the U.S. and the world, bagpipers and more, will all be at the great Back to Blue and First Responders Parade and Rally in Key West, Florida, Friday, January 8, 2021. Get more details on the Facebook group, Back to Blue and First Responders. That's Back to Blue and First Responders group on Facebook. And get more details here on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. This portion of the Law Enforcement Today show is brought to you by Mr. James Mather from Synergy Financial. Did you know that 30% of American households say they lack life insurance and 20% of households with children under age 18 are uninsured? As a former law enforcement officer, James Mather will always have your back. For free information about insurance, retirement, college funding strategies, and more, go online to mrjamesmather.com, spelled M-R. J-A-M-E-S-M-A-T-H-E-R.com. Again, that's MrJamesMather.com. Back to our conversation with James Galliano, retired FBI agent. He's also a contributor for CNN and also writes for the Washington Examiner. By the way, thank you for your service in both the Army and the FBI. One of the things that people don't understand is we tease each other quite a bit. In in Baltimore, we tease the state police, they teased us. We tease the feds, they teased us. The county police, we tease them as well. Uh, But we're one big family. And by the way, the firefighters are like our brothers and sisters in red. And we really rode each other hard, but we always had each other's back. 
the FBI, I think right now, to be honest with you, in my opinion, has got a severe black eye. And without getting into the politics and a reason why, I don't think it's a fair assessment of what they've been doing, at least for as long as I can remember. Yeah, no, I think you just, you, 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 you put that perfectly and teed me up perfectly for that. Yes, law enforcement writ large is a, is a I'm going to use the term fraternity in a non-gender specific um, means. It is a collegial group, folks that put their, their lives on the line and folks that, uh, that go into harm's way together. And there's a special bond there that I don't think, it's, it's that old saying about, you know, uh, you know, the protected can never understand what people that do what we do for a living, um, why our bonds are so tight. So there, there, there's that. And then you move into the FBI part, and of course, I mean, look, in the movies and on TV, what, what wing of law enforcement takes more of a beating than the FBI? You know, the goofy guy with the, with the, with the rumpled suit on and the wingtip shoes and, uh, and the fedora and, and can't fight his way out of a paper bag. The but suits. We all, That's what we, we call all them. know those are caricatures, of course, but no, um, you're right. And, and obviously, as we said at the top about, you know, trying to avoid the, the, you know, the integration of politics into law enforcement. It's an unfortunate reality. 2016 was when I got out of the, out of the FBI and retired after 25 years. And of course, there were some people at the top of the FBI, the helm, the director, the deputy director, a number of deputy assistant directors and, and senior senior uh, lawyers for the FBI that made some, some horrific mistakes in judgment. I, I believe that they could be good people who did bad things. And yeah. so, yes, that tainted the Bureau, but the Bureau is 36,500 employees, 12,000 FBI agents. The vast majority of them are great people that go to work every day to make America safer. But yes, there have been some bad apples as there are in every profession. And yes, some of that was exposed, I think, in 2016, to your point. And also in defense for the agents, for people who don't know, when you talk about the administrators, a lot of them are political appointees. A lot of them are, like I said, they're lawyers. They, they came through other agencies, other departments, and they're not rank and file agents who work their way up from the street. There are some of those that do occur, but uh, the vast majority I've ever worked with, I've ever met with, and by the way, plenty were former police that I worked with. They were phenomenal people. They're phenomenal law enforcement officers, and I'd go anywhere, anytime with any of them and, and have lunch or dinner. My drinking days are over, so it'd be coffee. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the FBI's been around for 112 years. In that time, there have only been eight FBI directors. I know that's hard to believe, but J. Edgar Hoover served for 48 years of that time. So only eight. And in that time, only one of them, and I served under four of the, of the eight official Senate-confirmed FBI directors in our, in our FBI history, uh, only one of the eight, Louis Free, um, had been an FBI agent before. You're, you're right. They are political appointees. They are appointed at the, by the, at the pleasure of the president. They serve a 10-year term. Um, you hope that they can kind of understand what the men and women down the street are doing. But you know as well as I do, having served in all different positions in our departments, sometimes I think the further you get away from the street, the less of the ability to understand what the men and women out there really fighting the good fight are doing and what they're about and how difficult their jobs are. And by the way, this is the last reference we make to politics. 
the FBI, most of the federal law enforcement agencies are under the executive branch of the government, which means the president. And when we look at local police and state and county, they're also under the executive branch. It be mayors, governors, county executives, things of that nature. And a lot of what you see going on in the news is driven by politics for that very, very reason. It, it's about elections. It's about Political power grabs is about a lot of things that just aren't being taught in civics anymore. And I'm getting away from that topic now because, again, you fired off some gray cells uh, in in my brain. I remember being a a young police uh, in Baltimore, and we had yearly in-service training. And uh, that was like a week of classroom and then one day at the range where you qualified. And there was an incident involving the FBI out of Miami and a bank holdup and a big gunfight. And so many of these all these agents were killed or severely injured. And that one incident changed the way we trained in Baltimore. And it boiled down to a very simple thing. One of the things we did at the range, because you had to pick up, we called our brass for expended rounds you, you fired, is after you'd fire with a revolver, you'd empty the brass into your hand and then put it in your pocket. And if my memory's correct, one of the agents was killed doing that. Am I correct on that? Well, I'll tell you what, you are, you, you are bringing up a, a very famous um, shooting. The, the FBI's Miami Division is actually named after Ben Grogan and Jerry Dove, and those were the two agents. One was a senior agent, the other one had been on the job for less than a year that were involved in that shooting with two bank robbers that happened in a residential neighborhood. I believe there were five FBI agents that were involved in that on the bank robbery squad that tracked these violent, violent bank robbers and tried to pull them over, and they ended up in a a residential area, which, as you know, being a former cop, the last place you want is a moving crisis site that ends up in a place where, where innocent civilians can possibly get hurt. I think you're referring to... Ben Grogan, who was the senior agent who wore glasses, they were shattered in the in the firefight. He was still armed at that time. The FBI was still issuing out three fifty sevens and thirty eights revolvers. Jerry Dove, the young kid that was with him that was also killed, had just been issued. I think the, the bureau had just gone to the Smith and Wesson ten fifty six or something at the time. I don't recall the, the exact details of it. I do know that that Ben was wounded. Was was hunkered down behind a uh, a tire or one of the wheel wells in the in the vehicle that they were in, which I think was a Crown Victoria at the time. And I believe he was trying to load from a pouch. Back before speed loaders, you know, you 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 loaded your pistol, your 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 revolver from a pouch. You reached in, pulled out two right. rounds, put them in. Reached in, pulled you know, pulled out two more rounds and put him in. He was in the process of trying to reload when one of the bad guys, I think their names were Platt and Maddox, were the two shooters, came around the car and essentially executed him. So tough, tough situation. You're absolutely right. It reverberated throughout the law enforcement community. It always does when, when we lose one of ours in the, uh, in the line of duty. But it changed a lot of things, and it was the impetus behind the Bureau completely moving away from revolvers and, and going to pistols. I showed up at the FBI Academy in, in, in February of 1991, and the Miami shootout, which had happened only five years earlier, was one of the biggest practical exercises that we went through, walking through it from start to finish and, and taking away the lessons learned. Cop, being a cop is all about lessons learned, learning absolutely. from the mistakes I mean, they're of learned, others, they're learning and also absolutely learning from way. the things that happened to, to, to us that you couldn't plan for or predict, but you've got to react to in the moment. We're going to take a short break. This is the Law Enforcement Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Epidemic. 
America's public health crisis. These are all terms that describe the current problem of drug and alcohol abuse in the United States. Countless lives are lost and heartbroken families are too many to count. Transformations Treatment Center is dedicated to saving lives. Call 888-991-9725 and online at transformationstreatment.center. Transformations Treatment Center provides a comprehensive range of treatments for addiction, substance abuse, co-occurring mental health disorders, and PTSD. Transformations Treatment Center has many acclaimed treatment programs offering rehabilitation and holistic treatment for all those suffering from substance abuse problems. Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. And online at transformationstreatment.center. Return our conversation with James Galliano, retired FBI agent, also a United States military veteran, and he's a contributor to CNN, and also he writes op-eds for the Washington Examiner about law enforcement-related issues. James, we're talking about the FBI shootout, and there's other ones that, that pop in my mind. And the reason I'm bringing this up, I want people, if they're sitting there, they never worked in law enforcement, and they're wondering why we do some of the things we do, it's because of horrific things that happen to other officers and or federal agents across the United States. And it changes the way we train everywhere. The difference between Miami and Baltimore, two totally different places, different situations, but it changed the way we did things dramatically. The other ones is like the North Hollywood shootout with uh, the LAPD before they had patrol rifles or assault rifles, whatever terms people want to use. By the way, AR stands for Armalite Rifle. It's not assault rifle, but... They didn't have them. They had to go to gun stores and ask to borrow theirs. Uh, And then having heavily armed vehicles to to get wounded officers off the street during gunfights. That's where that came from. So when you see these in your community and you go, that's the over-militarization of police, the reason they're there is because these things have occurred. And, And they've occurred with the FBI. They've occurred with DEA. They've occurred in city policing, county, doesn't matter. And we, we all learn to survive by the deaths of others is the best way I can paraphrase that. Yeah, you, uh, you're 100% right there. And uh, obviously, you know, our goal is to make sure that, uh, that every law enforcement officer has a chance to go home safely every night. But that's just not the reality of it. It's a dangerous business. Um, and you, to your point, you never know when something is going to happen. And, you know, I think what's tough for me is you look at a lot of these officer-involved shootings that have led to the riots, whether it's in Kenosha, Wisconsin, or whether it was in, well, it wasn't a shooting in Minneapolis, but, um, you know, you, you, you look back at Ferguson a few years ago, Baltimore, obviously, and you look at these things that are touchstones for, for some of these riots, the ones that are shootings, and people don't understand that when you have the ability, after the fact, to Monday morning quarterback things, slow it down, go frame by frame, and say, we'll shoot the officer there in, uh, you know, Garrett Rolfe in Atlanta. Uh, he didn't have to shoot that man that fired the taser at him. He could have done this. He could have used jujitsu or used a, a magic ninja throwing knife or shot the gun out of his hand. They come up with these just completely asinine things because they don't understand. Heck, look at it this way. Uh, you know, and I know we're not bringing politics into this, but, you know, you know Joe Biden, a form 
former vice president recently said that cops need to be trained better so that they shoot an opponent in the leg or shoot a gun out of their hand, not understanding that it just doesn't work that way, that in extremist situations, your training kicks in, and unfortunately, cops aren't on the range every day. They're, they're, they're out policing, and the few opportunities they do get to train and to shoot and to expend ammo and spend time in defensive tactics, it's such a small part of their job, but we expect them to be like movie superheroes that, you know, can sh- and shoot guns out of people's hands, and it's just not realistic. The only person I've ever heard of that could shoot a gun out of someone's hand was a sniper rifle, or a rifle-armed uh, sniper with a sure. fixed position and where the subject wasn't moving. I can tell people from my own experiences, being in gunfights, it's not like television. They come right. up very quickly. They end very, very quickly. They're very close proximity. And I, I was shocked at what I said. I was shocked at, at times at the noises I made. And uh, here's a great example. There's a man who was wanted for murdering someone who had a, a beauty salon and he stole his vehicle and he got back in the vehicle and he's charging me head on his old Corvette and he was firing with a, a 45 out the window hit me head on and I had a partner at the time because I was a sergeant and we we're sharing a car and my partner was yelling me not to get out of the car I couldn't understand what he said. I barely heard him it was like a TV in another room and the foot pursuit went on the gunfight everything else and I was armed with a 38 revolver he was trying to reload the 45, and I'm in the middle of the street, James, and I'm thinking I got no cover, no concealment, I got two rounds left, and if this guy gets reloaded, I'm done. Uh, and so I ran up and tackled him. What I didn't know at the time was he was having problems reloading because I'd shot him in the wrist. I couldn't even tell you what that guy looked like. Yeah. Yeah, they call what you're describing the auditory exclusion where police officers have been in violent gun battles, and then after the fact, they're asked, well, did you fire your weapon? They go, no, and then afterwards, you look back and you go, well, you fired you fired one magazine, which was 13 rounds, and then you, you reloaded and fired three more rounds, but they don't realize it because it's an in-extremist situation, meaning a, a life-or-death consequence-type situation, and you're right. You can't hear things. You can't see things. You just kind of lose sense of perspective. And that's really where training has to kick in. And if there's anything I think that we should afford our our law enforcement in this country more of, it is training. I mean, if we expect them to be superheroes, which is unrealistic, we can at least give them better training, give them more time at the academy. You mentioned earlier in-service training. Give them more of that. Give them the opportunity so that when you do get into a dogfight, and you know what it's like being in a dogfight, where it's you and him, and you're going to put this guy in cuffs and and bring him to meet the judge and and bring him to jail, and he's committed for that not to happen. It's a dogfight, and trying to teach people ways to do that. And now, brother, it's so different and so much more difficult because you've got, again, to introduce the politics, you've got all these policy ideas about how we can handcuff the police officers, make it more difficult difficult and less safe for them to do their job the other thing too james is we they talk about defunding police and the first thing that happens when you cut the funding for any department is training gets sacrificed so if you want more and by the way they're doing narcan they're doing cpr they're doing all these other things they're doing social work they're doing psychology very little of what police do is actually locking people up and very little of those are actually violent encounters but when they are they're extremely violent and they're sudden and there's very little training in my experience that prepares you for the mindset 
of what you've got to do to survive that. 100%. And real quick statistics here. Every year in this country, police officers make 250 million, with an M, million interactions with private citizens. The vast majority of them are as benign and as cheerful and pleasant as possible. Of those 250 million interactions, officers only employ deadly force in about 900 to 1,000 cases a year. And of those cases... There's a handful, usually five, six, seven, or less, a handful of cases where we can, after the fact, say that was an unjustified shoot or that was a bad shoot. Think about that. Think about what we're asking our officers to do. Think about the position we're putting them in and the fact that they really do respond in a way, I think, that people on the outside that just listen to the news and just hear all the hype don't understand what these officers do and how good they are at what they, how they do their job. And the amount of training they go through to get to where they're at, to, to be able to survive that. Look, that's what it boils down to. And I hate to say this, there are times, there have been battles and gunfights I was in where it was literally them or me, and thank goodness everybody survived. Uh, I, by the grace of God, everyone survived. But I would have done whatever it took to make sure I walked home to my, my family that night. Yeah, a hundred percent. You're you're absolutely right. And unfortunately, right now we're going to be doing it with less, right? Because you've got the abolish the police movement, you've got the defund the police movement. And here, I live about an hour north of New York City. In New York City, a city with thirty six thousand police officers, a city of eight point four million people. The NYPD, which I think is one of the finest, most professional, most, well, first of all, they're a majority-minority department, and they are probably one of the most discerning departments, most restrained departments. When you think about it, in 1971, there were 810 shooting incidents that took place in New York City by NYPD cops. 2018? There were 35. So think about that. And what does the city council do to reward them? They defund them by $1 billion with a B dollars. They have a $7 billion budget. They just slashed it down to $6 billion. That's the thanks they get for being a great department. And that's going to make all of us more unsafe. Of all the radio stations in the United States, there's only one show like ours. The Law Enforcement Today radio show. And on Facebook, there's only one official page Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. That's Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. When you get there, click like and follow. This is Law Enforcement Today Show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Want to fly somewhere? Looking for cheap flights or cheap tickets? Then call. That's right. Call the low-cost airline travel hotline now for prices so low, we can't publish them anywhere. Low-cost airlines has all kinds of cheap travel deals. Fly domestically and save up to 75%. You can even fly internationally and save even more. Yes, fly anywhere in the world and save a lot of money on your plane tickets. We'll even save you money with cheap travel deals on hotels, rental cars, even complete travel packages. So don't book your tickets until you call us first for the absolute cheapest prices on U.S. and international airline tickets and hotels. Call right now for prices so low they can't be published. Travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-451-8603-800-451-8603-800-451-8603. That's 800-451-8603. 
This portion of the show is brought to you by the True Crime Fighters Podcast. There are countless true crime podcasts, but few tell the stories of those that fight true crime. Episodes are usually 15 minutes or less. Subscribe today for free. Do a Google search for True Crime Fighters Podcast or go to truecrimefighterspodcast.com. Be sure to like and follow them on Facebook. Do a search for True Crime Fighters. James, we're talking about use of force. And the, the one thing I can come up with is I hear it all the time. Police use of force. When I say police, that includes the feds as well. That, um, by the way, you made a great point earlier. I always use the term guys. And in law enforcement, we really don't care about gender, race, right. sexual preference, religion, none of that. Just if you, just do your job. If I need help, show up, grab a hand, do whatever you can do. That's all we yep. ever ask for each other. So we've been equal opportunity for as long as I can remember. But when I say guys, that means men and women. One of the things that I can't seem to get through, and we seem to be suffering from in America, and if we take the politics out of it, which is a big chunk, is how do we get people to understand that when police have to use force, it's always ugly. It's never going to look good. And even as justified as the day is long, it can still look horrendously bad. Yeah, I, I've been uh, so. So I'm a I'm an adjunct professor at St. John's University, and I teach criminal justice and homeland security courses. And I'm also a doctoral student there. And what I am studying as part of my doctoral dissertation is an evaluation of police use of force. And I'm actually going back, and I'm, I'm going to replicate a study that was done in the early '70s of the NYPD, but bring it out across the '80s, '90s, 2000s, and 2010. Now, you just nailed it right there when you said. The issues of people being shot, especially people that are described by the media as unarmed. Unarmed means the person wasn't armed with a pistol or a knife when they encountered the police. Unarmed also means a person that violently struggles with you. So you're armed, you're, you're charged by the state with bringing this person in to meet justice. This person decides they're going to fight you. You don't know if they're going to disarm you and shoot you or shoot your partner or shoot an innocent bystander. But that person, if you shoot that person, they are considered unarmed, which is ridiculous. Ridiculous. Well, look, we're training our police officers, we're training our law enforcement officers right now in a whole host of things we call, the, 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 the new operative term is de-escalation. Here's the thing about de-escalation. I, I, I'm probably like you. My job, I had my gun out plenty of times on the job, but 99.9999% of the job I did was based on what I heard, saw, and how I communicated. That was how I, you know, de-escalated things. That's how I talked people into giving up. That's how I talked people into fight this in court. Don't fight us here now. But what happens when a guy goes, I don't care what you say. You're not taking me in. We as law enforcement don't have the option to go, all right, well, it's Tuesday night. I guess it's time to go home and watch, uh, you know, Alaskan bush people on TV. I'll head home and do that. You go ahead and turn yourself in when you feel like it. It's ridiculous. It's lunacy. So the issues that I'm finding, which, look, it's no surprise. I didn't discover this. I'm I'm not, you know, some brilliant scholar here. 99.99% of the times that people get shot in encounters with police are related to non-compliance. So you are not listening to the lawful orders and directors of an armed instrument of the state, and
And then if you get shot in that, it is the police officers were wrong. Now, there are bad shoots. We know that. There are unjustified shoots. We know that. There are situations that demand that we, either that are current law enforcement or former, stand up and say, that was wrong, right? That was, that was improper, inappropriate use of force, or that was police brutality. Let's call it what it is. But in the vast majority of these instances, that's not the case. It's the case of somebody who raises the temperature to the point of a deadly confrontation. And a perfect example is what happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin. You have a man where 911 is called, showed up at an ex-girlfriend's house, and then sexually assaulted her with one of her children in her bed. The police stop him. They understand there's an open warrant for his arrest. They understand what the 911 call was, which was a sexual assault. They try to take him into custody. He violently fights them. They attempt to use less than lethal force. In this case, it was a taser. He was impervious to the taser. He goes to a car. He has a knife in his hand. A police officer ends up shooting seven times, I believe striking him four times, and we have a month of riots. Cities on fire, police precincts assaulted, people attacked on the street, businesses looted, because people are angry that a alleged sexual assaulter who violently fights the police is non-compliant is shot. It's insanity. Absolutely, it's insanity. And there's so many things I could say, but the truth is... If I say them, someone will use that as ammunition against me. So, Mm -hmm. given the current culture, there's certain things I can't say. All I can say is this. You brought back earlier de-escalation. I can't de-escalate alone. In in law enforcement, we were were taught a term that's not used much anymore. It's called verbal judo. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and basically what it means, it, I'll give you an example. When we did drug raids, you'd have five cops going in, one in uniform at least, one or two. And we'd all be screaming something, be police, police, but making so much noise it kind of disorients you that you don't know who to go after first. And if I was confronted with someone who was violent, we would use terminology that was so upsetting, letting them know clearly that you're not yep. going to win and that it's gonna, you're going to get hurt. Right. And you might want to go to the hospital and you might get killed. I'm not going to use the terms we'd use, but that was done to prevent having to use force. Now, if you even say that to someone, you're deemed to be violent. You're deemed to be aggressive. You're deemed to be out of control and you're looking for a fight. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's the thing, I think, because most citizens, and sometimes this is the case with juries and, and defense attorneys will use this to their benefit, they don't understand what you pointed out earlier, how much of a, a when you're in an existential fight for your life, when you're trying to bring somebody into custody and that person says, not today, it ain't going to happen, and you are in an existential struggle because you cannot afford to lose that fight. If you lose that fight, you do not go home to dinner with the wife and kids and that cannot happen so people don't understand the language people don't understand what happens when the adrenaline is pumping and they just expect that well i don't know why you acted like that or said that or witnesses on the street heard you use a well they heard you use an epithet you used a bad word well they don't understand that in those type of circumstances you're sending people out the thin blue line to keep the rest of us 
me, like me, this retired guy, to keep the rest of us safe. And then we want to put on these ridiculous constraints on them and say, you have to act like this. You can't have this. We don't want to give you the equipment because we don't want you to look like an occupying army. We don't want to look like there's or appear to be a militarization of the police. We don't want you to have these type of weapons. You can only have this many rounds in your magazine. I mean, it is a ridiculous set of policy constraints that are put in place by people that have never done the job. And they're the first ones to quarterback. And I also say this, I, I love police. I really do. But they can sometimes be the worst saying, well, I'd have done this, I'd have done that. And my response is, you weren't there. <laughs> you don't know. And yep. I, that's why I don't comment on a lot of cases like Kenosha and other things until more facts are revealed because it's easy to make a snap judgment from the comfort and safety of my office, which is thousands of miles away. You brought up another memory. And people have asked me, and I've said to him, how would you handle this? There, there was a raid we did. And it was a guy we discovered who was supposedly a hitman for a drug organization in Baltimore and had seven or eight murders on his belt. And he's wanted for murder. And he'd run out onto the fire escape. And I was on a fire escape with him. And he had to go through me to get down below. And the exchange that we had, the verbal exchange before the altercation was ugly. But he wound up being arrested. He had to go to the hospital, get some treatment for wounds. Uh, but he lived and he went to trial. And when people say, well, you could have handled that differently, I ask them, how would you handle it? Yeah, I, um, one of my jobs at CNN is a law enforcement analyst, and, and another of my jobs, which is writing op-eds, whether it's for CNN Opinion or whether it's for the Washington Examiner, is editors will call me and something will happen on the street. It'll get reported on the news. They'll go, Jimmy, quick, we need a hot take. And I am always reticent to weigh in on officer-involved shootings, use of deadly force, you know, some of these combustible incendiary incidents that we, we've all been witness to now over the course of the past few months and obviously for the past past few years, I'm always careful because, A, I want to give the officer the benefit of the doubt. I want to get all the facts in. And if somebody is wrong and they just happen to have a badge and a gun, I want to be able to say that. But officers, which people don't understand, I think, are entitled to the same due process that you and I are. They are innocent until proven guilty. And I know this like you know this because we spent a, a career. I spent half my life in law enforcement, much of that time on, on a PD task force. I know that the vast majority of cops are good people and that mistakes that are made in a nanosecond, typically in low-light situations and with all the noise and the dust and the, and the vitriol, everything that you described when you talked about that one fight and that one gun battle, Going through that and then being able to sit back now and, and sip on a cup of a, of a, of a latte and, and then go, oh, well, I would have done this or I would have done that. Yeah. I try to be careful with that. We do need to police our own. We do need to call out bad acts. We also need to give the benefit of the doubt to people that are out there trying to put their lives on the line for the rest of us. And James, we're out of time. Give people your website address and how they can get a hold of you online. I'm not going to give them that. I'm going to tell them that I'm the board of directors for the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. Go to policedefense.org, which is the L-E-L-D-F, the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. We defend a wrongfully accused police officers. Go there. You can make a donation there to a particular case. They're all outlined there. This is an amazing organization. It's been around 25 years. I am privileged to be on the board of directors there. The vast majority of the money goes directly to 
toward the financial, legal costs for officers that are wrongly charged. So if you get a chance, if your listeners would go there, that would make me the happiest man in the world. James, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciate it. Thanks again for having me. I, I, I enjoyed it. The place to be online is our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. You'll get access to unique news articles, editorials, and so much more. That's Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today Show. We've got another great guest heading your way next week. Don't miss it. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. Thank you.